0: Thank <laughs> you. to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire and this week on the show we are celebrating International Day of Women and Girls in Information Communication Technology and I'm joined by a special guest, Dr Linda McIver, who's the Executive Director of the Australian Data Science Education Institute, stay tuned for a fascinating conversation with Linda all about machine learning and AI, get a bit of a lowdown on, you know, some of the real dangers that lie in how implicitly biased these algorithms in machine learning are and why we should be a bit more worried about that than AI becoming sentient any time in the near future. And coming up later on the show, Chris is out in the wild experimenting again. Yes, um, this time he is in the park with his kids on a swing. Uh, Seriously, you have to hear it to believe it. It is amazing. And, of course, it is all in the name of science. Uh, Published science, of course, in a reputable physics journal. Chris will be replicating some very detailed and technical research that explains how you can use physics to pump a swing and have um, the best most scientific time ever so on with the show So it is International Day for Women and Girls in Information Communications Technology on April 27. And to celebrate, I have none other than the wonderful friend of Lost in Science, Dr. Linda McIver, Executive Director of the Australian Data Science Education Institute. Linda, welcome back to Lost in Science. Thanks so much. It's great to be here, Claire. Ah, uh, it's good to have you back. Um, now, I was just thinking back. Last time you were with us, it was probably about five or six years ago. Um, it was an International Women's Day show that we had, and we were speaking a lot about a lack of representation of women in STEM <laughs> broadly. But I mean, your area is in data science and in ICT, and sort of reflecting on that, there have been so many advances that have happened in that in your space in data science in ICT, especially you know when it comes to machine learning. Everyone's chatting the chat GPT and artificial intelligence. I'm curious to know how, what what are your thoughts about this? And especially as someone who's been thinking about gender representation in ICT, how have your thoughts changed in the last five or six years?
1: I think the thing that I've really um, zeroed in on is that change has to start really early. Kids get indoctrinated with gender roles and expectations really early regardless of how hard we try they learn they soak this stuff up from the society that they're in from the media from the people around them and they learn what they're supposed to do and not supposed to do and i'm you know put putting supposed in question in quotation marks but um they learn um very early whether they think uh tech is something they can do and something they should do and That's one of the reasons that I do the work that I do, which is trying to get those STEM skills very early, you know, from the very start of primary school where kids are doing projects where they're actually effecting positive change in their own communities using STEM skills. And that's that's how we teach them that STEM skills are something they can do and something that's worth having. And that is how we will change the representation in industry because at the moment industry is... Run by people who have those gender roles in their heads, Mm. and it's also you know the people, the the kids coming through into university and what have you have those have those stereotypes in their heads, and so we're getting a lot of kids, and not just girls; it's uh, non-binary kids, and it's also a lot of the boys who are not Mm. choosing tech because what they've learned at school is tech is boring and it's pointless, and robots pushing each other around circles, and like it's it's not (laughs) relevant to them. Mm. So we have to teach them that tech is relevant to them. Because if we have tech constantly designed by, as my husband put it earlier today, uh, pizza eating tech bros, then we get software that does things like tells you your period is invalid and that's a true Mm. story. Uh, Or um, that, you know, it's completely unusable for blind people or that doesn't recognize the skin of people of color. Like there's just so many examples of, bias and discrimination and stuff built into software because it's mm. built by Pete's Reading Tech Bros.
0: Absolutely. And you've written an excellent article about this issue of bias in artificial intelligence and machine learning and how it can be, you know, me thinking about, I guess, you know, bias in AI. I'm like, well, can't we just program that out of AI you know isn't isn't that something if we're aware of it, then you know maybe we can put in the necessary measures for it, but you've presented a good an excellent article as to why that might not necessarily be the case. so can you sort of explain a little bit about about that for us?
1: What happens with what we call AI but which is actually not intelligent at all? Um, what happens with machine learning is what I'm going to call it um is that we train it on you know, vast data sets. So we pull, you know, huge amounts of data down off the Internet and we feed it into these programs. And then we go, hey, they're unbiased. Mm-hmm. But that would only be the case if the huge amount of data that they pull down off the Internet was unbiased. And we know that's not true. You know, if you do a Google search for professor, you still get something like 89% pictures of men. Yeah. Um, basic things like that, but also you know, when we when we have these machine learning systems, um, so the example I used in the article was uh, human resources, So we're using AI a lot for recruitment purposes, mm. and when you feed stuff into an AI, not only does it learn the biases that you fed in. So if you fed into an AI, we mostly hire men for this role. Mm. You know, you don't explicitly say that, of course, no one explicitly says that, but you feed it all the people you've hired and they're almost all men. Yeah and then you feed a woman's resume into that system or even more likely to be discriminated against you feed a non-binary person's resume into the system and it goes oh i haven't seen one of those before they are not the kind of people i hire mm-hmm. therefore it throws it out and in doing so it reinforces yeah. the idea these are not the people who make it through the system and so what you've got is once again, uh, a system that is biased, a system that's you know, basically white men hiring other white men, but worse than that, you can't interrogate it. You can't understand how it's making its decisions. And we have these rabid fanatical machine learning fans who say, but machines are unbiased when actually what they're doing is magnifying the bias and baking it in and making it uncontestable which is just catastrophic.
0: What are your thoughts around how, you know, open these doors that may have been closed again by these um, this machine learning?
1: I think one of the big dangers that we haven't talked about and which is absolutely key is that we tend to bend at the knees. When a computer tells us something, we kind of bow and go, yes, you know, of course it must be right. And, and we just fold. And so it's very difficult for us to, to apply that rational scepticism, that critical thinking, to anything that a machine puts out. We know from various studies that even when we tell people that computers, that, that the system is wrong and you should believe yourself over the system, mm-hmm. people still believe the system over themselves because it's a computer and it must be right. We have this, computers are right. If, the pro- if there's a problem and it, the, there's something the computer's saying and something you're saying, the problem is obviously with you, not the computer. And it's, it's, that's a real danger because that means we're not even asking questions of these systems. Um, And so what we need to do is we need to build that scepticism. We need to build that rational, critical thinking. So when I say scepticism, it's a loaded term now. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, I don't mean scepticism based on what some dude said on YouTube. I mean (laughs) scepticism based on data and evidence and, and, you know, what the science tells us. And that's really hard to apply to these closed black boxes. Um, But we can do things like when the the ceo of a of a melbourne based ai company came on, on was quoted in the guardian recently as saying ai is the only way to remove bias and and we we have to be able to we have to know enough as a society to challenge that to go that's not true AI systems are biased they were built by people mm-hmm. they were trained by people mm-hmm. they were fed data that was created by people there is yeah. bias in all of those steps show me where you've removed the bias
0: yeah um, so that's so, education right? yeah. we have
1: to we have to train people to be able to ask those questions we have to we have to ask them loudly and and teach people that computers make mistakes.
0: Um, and it comes back to those STEM skills that you were talking about before, right?
1: Exactly. So this is why I'm going to do a shameless plug here. Please. <laughs> but, um, the book that I wrote a couple of years ago is called Raising Heretics, Teaching Kids to Change the World. And the heresy part is really important because if you can't challenge what everybody knows to be true, then you can't ever progress. Um, and I, there's a lot of examples in the book of, of various scientific heresies that were challenged and, you know, people people scientific orthodoxies that people challenged uh, and had to be heretical to do so that turned out to be correct. But my favourite one is the idea that COVID is airborne um, mm-hmm. because that took two years to really get scientific credence even though the evidence was in very early on within months of the pandemic being declared we knew it was airborne but we weren't um it wasn't being publicized because the orthodoxy said respiratory diseases are droplet spread and it's also not true of the flu by the way the flu is also airborne and this um, scientist Lindsay Ma proved that in 2011 but she struggled to get it published it's an amazing story. Uh, go look up Lindsay Maher if you if you want to know yeah. the story.
0: Lindy, you're going to be part of a panel at ScienceWorks on the evening of Thursday, the April 27, to celebrate International Day for Women and Girls in ICT. Can you tell us what we can expect? Um it is a Melbourne-based event, but I believe it will be broadcast as well.
1: You can buy tickets to it and attend online and then you also get two weeks access to the to the recording. Uh, and you can submit questions to us. I think that's going to be the really interesting part. Um, but it's also, I believe, going to be broadcast as part of the ABC's uh, Big Ideas program. So that's exciting.
0: Fantastic. Um,
1: but the panel is basically just talking about AI. What are the issues? What are the potential benefits? What What can AI do for us? And what mm. do we need to be wary of because um, mm-hmm. the the publicity from the industry is all, oh, we need to be wary of AI becoming sentient. That is a huge red herring. They're all going, look over there, worry about AI being sentient. Whereas the actual fear, the actual worries we should be having are about the bias and the dangers. And they're trying not to, not mm. to let anyone think about that. They're going, look over there, worry about sentience, which is just not an issue at the moment. And may never be, or maybe in decades' time, who knows, mm. but right now we have clear and present harms
0: mm-hmm. caused
1: by AI that they're trying not to let us think about.
0: Well, Linda, I cannot wait to hear you on the panel, um, and you'll be joined by some other expert panellists also, is that correct? That is, I'm really excited about
1: the other people on the panel. We've got Kiowa Scott Hurley, who is an Indigenous woman in her high performance computing, and she's incredible. Uh, and we have uh, Mujan Askari, I hope I pronounced that correctly, who started uh, an international organization for women in artificial intelligence. And she's got some amazing things to say as well. So it's going to be a really amazing conversation. And if you come along or join online, you can ask us questions.
0: Sounds like an absolute cracker and what, what a brilliant conversation to mark the day of women and girls in ICT. So thanks again, Linda, and um, can't wait to hear more. Thanks, Claire. It's been fantastic to be here.
1: I think we're lost.
0: We're not lost. Not even any
1: short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful
0: radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard
1: equipment. Science and technology must be absolutely mind boggling. I said it's mostly on the theoretical
0: side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science.
2: All right, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, as a parent of young children, I, of course, have spent a lot of time pushing a swing. Yeah, they they have a lot more patience, toddlers, for uh, for being pushed on a swing than a parent has for the time spent doing the pushing, generally. I mean, this is why there are multiple automatic swings on the market to, uh, <laughs> to push your little babies without you having to do it yourself. Um, I, I guess, guess so. But look, yeah, the ultimate thing, though, is for the child to become independent and to be able to push themselves on the swing. And this is what I want to talk about. This is the the ability that pretty much everyone learns of how to generate as you said their own energy angular momentum to make the swing move on its own i actually briefly attempted to explain this to one of our kids how to do it i think we were on we were on parallel swings i was he was on one swing and i was on the other one i said oh, look this is what you do uh and i realized that a, I did not really understand well enough how it works to be able to describe it, and B, he did not quite have the capacity to understand what I was saying. It's, it's also, yeah, it's also not a very visually easy thing to see what someone's actually doing, like what sort of motions they're making and where they're putting pressure and things like that to actually get anything to happen. Yeah, so the perfect story for radio, basically. Um <laughs> Anyway, but this was was also inspired not just by my playground experiences uh, recent and long ago, but also by a new piece of research that was published in the journal Physical Review E, which I have to say is actually one of the, the top physics journals so there's a whole suite of journals in the physical review family and they are pretty high profile they're you know they're up there in the high tier um, physics journals um i myself have had papers published in physical review a and physical review d because they're on different topics um but physical review e seems like it's quite a special one based on this particular um, research, which was done by um, Chiaki Hirata and colleagues, mostly in Japan. But we have an Australian representative, Michael J. Richardson from Macquarie University, was also involved in the research. Essentially, what they have done is they have built a detailed model that describes how pumping a swing works, a mathematical model, I should say, And then they have done some computer, I guess, simulations using this model. And they did experiments to confirm whether their model was correct or not. And, yeah, it seems pretty comprehensive. It's a pretty good detailed model. and everyone seems quite impressed, although it leaves a few questions unanswered, as we will get to. But essentially, at its most basic, a swing is a type of pendulum. Yeah, I was was just going to say, a swing is just a pendulum, right? You don't just get a pendulum to start moving without putting some energy into it somehow. No, absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, so a swing is a pendulum and a swing swing like a pendulum swings generally with a fairly constant frequency. If you remember any of your if you've actually studied this at all in physics, remember for it's the simplest kind of approximation? The uh, the the period or frequency of a pendulum depends only on the length of the, the string or chain in the case of a swing, and the acceleration of gravity. Right. So it's it's a pretty simple mechanical system. But as you said, yeah, it doesn't keep start moving on its own. So you need to get it moving. Now, you can clearly be pushed by an adult or be pushed with your own feet. So I guess we can consider you might start off with that. But the way that the pumping works, at least to get you going, has been understood for quite a while. I think there were some studies done on this in the 1970s, First of all, this is is a long-running piece of research, I should say. And look, essentially what's happening, like you said, it's it's a a pendulum. It's not going to move on its own. So what you do is by moving yourself backwards and forwards in the swing seat, you are changing location of your center of gravity. And so you are essentially making the pendulum move by yourself. So if you think about it, you lean forward in the swing. Then what you have done is you have moved the centre of gravity forward. It's now like the pendulum has tilted forward, because that's effectively what the centre of mass is doing. And so then that will cause it to swing backwards again. Oppositely, if you lean back, then what you're doing is moving the centre of gravity backwards, and you're making gonna make the pendulum kind of move forwards. Yeah. So that's what you're essentially doing to get it going. So when the swing is hanging straight down, you're leaning either forwards or backwards, depending which way you want it to move. And you are putting energy in the system. You are putting angular momentum water peak in the system to make it swing backwards and forwards. Yeah. Now, so the the previous understanding before this latest groundbreaking research, not really, uh, was essentially assuming that's what the person is doing. They're going to be oscillating their body backwards and forwards in a fairly kind of constant frequency and so generating more and more energy into the system making the swing higher and higher except that's not the way a swing really works for one thing as i said the the frequency depends on just the the length of the the chain and the acceleration due to gravity but that's only an approximation for small angles of the pendulum When it swings at higher amplitudes, at higher angles, then the the frequency changes, the period actually gets longer. So to keep your pumping working, you have to change the frequency that you are oscillating backwards and forwards at. But not only that, when people actually do it, the way that they actually swing backwards and forwards changes as well. What happens is when you're at the high amplitudes and you want to kind of like keep this happy swinging going at a huge rate what you find is instead of kind of making your leaning forwards and backwards when the when the chain is hanging vertically you tend to do it at the ends of the of the oscillation so when you swing right backwards you lean your body back and so you move your center of gravity way back and so to give it a bit more oomph into it and suddenly so when it goes forwards you lean your center your body forwards to give it a bit more oomph into the motion, so instead of getting the swing, it's basically two phases to it. It's getting the swing going, which is one way of pumping, and then there is keeping the swing going, uh, which is at a different kind of phase, if you like, in relation to the way that the swing is going. So you change the way that you're pumping depending on how high it is swinging. Okay. What they have done in this in this paper is, like I said, they they created a fairly detailed mathematical, mathematical model to describe how this works and how these different kind of motions are working together to make the, the swing pump. And so I went down to the playground and the local playground and I thought I would have a go at doing this. Now I recorded some of my audio. Now I'm going to play this for you, Stu, and you can hear me trying to replicate the results of this paper. Now I did feel a bit silly sitting on a playground swing recording myself try to emulate a physics paper. But I guess it's not as silly as the people who built an experimental setup in the laboratory and got volunteers in to, yeah, actually measure the <laughs> physics of it. It's, it's not just audio of you on the swing going, "wee," is it, Chris? It is a lot like that. So we'll play it <laughs> and you'll find out. All right. So here I am sitting on a swing and it's not moving. Now, if I lean my top back, then I change my center of gravity. I lean forward, move it forward again. And by doing that, I can set the swing swinging. Now it takes a while to build up to a big amplitude so we're just going to cheat a bit with my feet but when you're doing a big swing then what you do is apparently according to the model and I'm trying it now. You lean back at the highest point back you lean forward at the highest point forward and that's how you maintain your amplitude. So all I'm doing now is what it said, but I am following the instructions. In the paper. And it seems to work. There you go. Now, this is probably not surprising and it's not very convincing because it's just me doing the audio. But essentially, as we discussed, you don't really know how this works normally yourself, but it has been nicely described in this paper. It seems to be pretty accurate. However, like I said at the beginning, there are some questions that are left unanswered. And one is how do people actually do it? How do they adjust their, their swing to suit the different amplitudes? Because the, the amount of shifting that you would need to do, they do some rough calculations at the end of this paper, the amount of shifting you would need to do in both the frequency of your oscillations and the, the phase that you're shifting to, in relation to the, the, the motion of the swing, it's about a 7 milliseconds difference per, per swing that you have to change, that you have to adjust it by, which is a very fine-tuning bit of tweaking. Now, they posit in this paper that it's perhaps something to do with centrifugal forces, that the human is feeling the forces and responding to those. I don't know whether that's, that's the case or not. I actually tried to do another experiment where I thought, well, if it is just feeling the forces, maybe it'll work if I close my eyes. So we'll see what happens if I close my eyes and do this. Now, we're going to start this again. I'm going to stop again. I'm going to start it again, and I'm going to try with my eyes closed to see if it is, I guess, me determining it by the forces involved. Here we go. So far uh, so good doing my swinging. Oh, it feels weird doing this with eyes closed. <laughs> um, I don't know. See, because this is radio, you can't see what's going on, and neither can I because I have my eyes closed. Alright. That is a lot harder. Yeah, so Look, that wasn't the most scientific experiment. I'll admit that. Uh, It was to me on a swing in a playground with my eyes closed. But essentially, I found it really difficult. Now, maybe because I was trying to follow in my head, doing consciously what the paper said I was supposed to do and trying to determine, deduce where the swing was. But essentially, I couldn't work out what the swing was doing. I got very confused about what I was doing. So I don't know this theory about being the forces. There may be some more work to be done on that. Um, certainly, I was not capable of really controlling the swinging that well with my eyes closed without being able to see what was going on. Um, yeah, there was some talk about when people discussing around the paper saying, you know, ultimately what you want to do is be able to, say, build a swinging robot to demonstrate that you fully understand doing it. But you couldn't just put the equations into the robot because it has to, have to be able to see the amplitude that the swing has to be able to detect be able to see active feedback into the adjustment. So actually how you sense it is not clear at this point. So that is the remaining bit of work, I suppose. Um, it's nice to know that the, there's not a complete understanding. We understand the mathematics, certainly, of playground swinging. But yeah, the complete sort of system of how the human is involved, the human operator, so to speak. Uh, yeah, that is still an unsolved part of the equation. Uh, it's exciting future for swing research, I think.
0: And that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and the Duranjaj people and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at lostinsire at gmail.com or just tune in again next week when Claire, Chris and Stu get Lost in Science.